speak until the church is built up. Why that's what we're doing here. That's why we come together. We come to enjoy the fellowship of our Lord in the context of believers. And we do so wanting our Lord to speak to us. We don't believe that he's going to speak to us in in an audible way as though we're going to hear a a literal voice, but we do have what's called his word, the word of God, the Bible. And as we open it and explain it and we let him speak through this word, he does speak to our hearts. Let's give him the attention that he deserves, shall we? And uh, let us pray and ask him to do that very thing, to speak to our hearts through his word. Gracious Father, we thank you, Lord, for not holding back. And as Psalm 19 was read this morning, we're reminded, Lord, that you revealed yourself through creation. And that creation really puts a pressure in our hearts as we know you are true. We know you exist. We know you're real. But it is not until the the revelation, the, the written, spoken revelation is preached, is sent out, that we understand who you are, what you're all about, and what our need is, and that we need you, and that you have provided for that need in Christ. We pray this morning, Lord, that we would give you the attention that you deserve, Lord, that this morning... Receiving the word would be an act of worship. We would love you, Lord, in the receiving of it. Father, forgive us for ever having an academic approach to your word that might make this time sterile and wooden and not alive like you tell us the scripture is, Hebrews 4, like you tell us the spirit in his ministry of searching and making us more like Christ does. We pray for all these things, Lord, that they would be true for us today. Speak to us that we might serve you and know you and love you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We believe that uh, every word that is in this book is God's word. Every word is inspired. Every word is meant for us to study and know and to know it that we might love him more by it. So because we believe every word and every book is 2 Timothy 3.16, every, every book is profitable and inspired, useful, that includes the Old Testament, doesn't it? So this morning we turn our attention to an Old Testament book. It might take you half the service to find it because you're not used to turning there. So why don't you go ahead and look for Zephaniah right now because that's where we're going to be this morning. And I've entitled the sermon here, Turning Judgment into Blessing. When's the last time you can remember, boy, uh, that was a bad day. (laughs) Can you remember one of those? You see... Yeah, I was thinking actually this morning, and it's not even done yet, you know. Or maybe it was last week sometime. I missed missed all those good ones. You know, it's funny that Christmas and all this New Year's and holiday stuff is supposed to be cheery and everything and and that. But yeah, I I fear that we put a lot of pressure on ourselves, don't we, with all the gathering and going around and presents and all that kind of stuff. That That can be a recipe for some bad days. Maybe you can relate with Alexander. Possibly you've read a book about Alexander and this quote that came from the book about him. I went to sleep with gum in my mouth and now there's gum in my hair. And when I got out of bed this morning, I tripped on the skateboard and by mistake I dropped my sweater in the sink while the water was running and I could tell it was going to be a terrible, horrible, no good, very bad day. That's a quote from Judith virus 1972 book entitled Alexander and the terrible horrible no good very bad day 
It's a children's book. You can learn profound things from those types of books. Maybe you haven't had as bad a day as Alexander. But as you look at 2010 and this new year, you ought to consider what it would be like to have a day that couldn't be topped. That is the worst day of all. I'm going to ask you to do that. And I know I've kind of set the tone maybe a little bit light. And that's partly because we're going to delve into something that's not light at all. It's a day that's worse than Alexander could ever imagine. There's a day coming that is a very terrible, no good, bad day. But the heavy side of that is, is it will last eternally forever. It would be a day in constant punishment that would never stop. That would be the worst day of all, wouldn't it? And I want us to reflect on that. God knows, uh, by the way, that he knows that we are going to plan our days. And sometimes we read certain passages and, and verses and we think to ourselves, you know, that we kind of get challenged on, well, should I even plan my days? I mean, you know, the, I think of that passage in James 4 that tells us, you know, not to, 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 tells us to be careful. You know, the guy who says today or tomorrow we're going to do such and such a, a thing and go to such and such a city and have business and, and that's planning your financial success. And he says, wait a minute, you ought to consider the will of God first. Right? And so we're challenged in a sense about that. Or Proverbs 16, the mind of man plans his way. You see, that's how man's mind works. And by the way, we don't plan bad days, do we? We always plan for the good ones. And you know, this time of the year, I mean, that's kind of the way it is. I mean, I don't know about you, but, you know, kind of for me and, and my family, it's a, it's, you know, you, you put up the new calendar and you kind of look and you start marking things on that calendar. Or maybe you look at the old calendar and you're putting stuff on the new calendar that was on the old calendar. I don't want to forget this date here. And oh, yeah, that's, you know... Cousin Joe's birthday and, you know, Uncle Bob or whatever. I mean, you know, you're putting all this stuff on the calendar and you don't want to forget. See. We're very calendar-oriented people, especially here in the United States. We like numbers. We like to look at things. We like to plan. We like to kind of scope. We like to project. And so as we get our 2010 calendars and we start our planning for the new year, we need to think about one day that can change your life. The day of the Lord. I want you to consider the day of the Lord. That's on his calendar. I say that tongue in cheek because obviously the Lord doesn't need a calendar per se because why with him he's timeless and eternal. But he has one because everything's ordained and planned out, isn't it? You can't plan for this day, but it's an important day. Why? Because that's the day that God marked on his calendar, listen, and yours, when he will judge the world. So that's a very important day. Do you think I'm overstating it? Well, if you finally found Zephaniah, look at, this is the book we're going to be studying this morning. Let me show you, Look at starting at verse 14. He says, near is the great day of the Lord, near and coming very quickly. Listen, the day of the Lord. He says, listen. I mean, it is as though Zephaniah says, I want you to really think about this day. I want you to think it through. Think this through day. Listen to, listen. In fact, it's an incomplete sentence. Listen, the day of the Lord. So, what are you supposed to do with it? Well, just listen. What are we listening for? Think it through. Understand it. Consider it. Let it mull around in your mind that there is that day. Look at the end of verse 14 as we ponder why. Why should we think it through? Verse 14. In it, the warrior cries out bitterly. Strong, experienced, ruthless warriors of the day. It says here they're going to cry. 
In other words, this is a day that's going to bring the leader of leaders, the toughest, meanest people on the face of the earth to their knees in tears. They're not going to be able to take it. They're not going to be able to play John Wayne. They're not going to be able to put that stiff upper lip and go, I can take this. We'll find a way. We'll battle through this. The day of the Lord's going to make the tough guy cry. Verse 15, a day of wrath, a day of trouble, distress, destruction, and desolation, darkness and gloom, clouds and thick darkness. Look at verse 17, distress on men so that they will walk like the blind. Why? What's it, what's it say that for? Because they have sinned against It's a day where the ones who have sinned against the Lord will walk like they're blind. What's that like? Uh, I was thinking of different ways I could help you understand what it's like to walk around like the blind and, and have the type of distress that he's talking about. Have you ever tried to close your eyes and walk around the edge of the Grand Canyon? Well, maybe most of you haven't even been to the Grand Canyon, but you could, you could picture that. I wouldn't want to do that. <laughs> that would be sure, you know, a recipe for disaster. That's the idea. Who are the ones, by the way, who have sinned against the Lord? All have sinned, it says in Romans 3.23, and fall short of the glory of God. All unbelievers. Verse 17 goes on to tell us that it's going to be a day where their blood will be poured out like dust and their flesh like dung. Oh, if only this scripture could just tell us, you know, what it, you know, say it like it is. Come on. Yeah, it, he does, doesn't he? It's very graphic, very descriptive. Complete destruction is the idea. Then verse 18 closes it. Their money will not be able to deliver them, no matter how much they have. See, this is the reason why it seems so many people accumulating money. It's so important. Have to have that money. This is very important for my life. Have to be successful. I've got to be defined by how much I make. I've got to be defined by how much I save. And he tells us here, don't bother. Because you know what? On the day of the Lord, it's not going to help you. Look at what he says there in verse 18. Listen to this. On the day of the Lord's wrath, and all the earth will be devoured in the fire of his jealousy, for he will make a complete end, indeed a terrifying one, of all the inhabitants of the earth. Notice the words all and complete and the word end. It's very exhaustive. It's, it, it's very, I mean, you, you can't, uh, there's not, nothing to add to it, right? When God uses the word complete, it really is complete. It's done. You know, it's interesting. I mean, we have the great statement, and we live by this statement in John 19.30. It is finished. That's Christ's statement on the cross. But you know what? This is the it is finished the, the, the unbeliever doesn't want to hear. You don't want to hear this if you're an unbeliever. It is finished, meaning no more for you. Destruction is a complete destruction. There's nothing that's going to be added to it because there's nothing left. And all that's left will be believers, Lord, His church. So, how can a person avoid that coming bad, terrible day? How can you turn that kind of judgment into a life of blessing? Is this it? Are you doomed if you don't know the Lord? If you are a Christian, by the way, how can you enjoy that, you know, the blessing that's promised to you and the refuge that you have from that day? These are good things to think about. Jesus said it this way in John 3, He who believes in him is not judged. He who does not believe has been judged already. And then he described, then he defines what the judgment is. Listen to this. This is the judgment that the light has come into the world. Jesus, right? And men love the darkness rather than the light for their deeds were evil. When here you have Jesus, here you have your deeds. And you know what, by the way, 
You know what he, when it says there, deeds? If you really want to understand what he means by that, just transfer in your mind doing things that you want to do. Okay? So here you have Jesus on this side, and over here you have doing the things that your flesh wants to do. And what he says is, judgment came into the world because there were people that refused to receive Jesus Christ because they wanted to do the things that they wanted to do. And so there's judgment. All right, now if you're not there at Zephaniah even yet, you got to get there. And you need to go to chapter 3. All right, so we're going to be in chapter 3 this morning. And as you're looking, turning there to chapter 3, so many, think about this, so many people that just don't want the negative talk. So many that want speeches that are upbeat. Keep things positive, they say. It's like the guy who gets, you know, bad medical news about his wife, but doesn't tell her for fear that it's just going to ruin her day. It's going to make her sad. There are people like that. Keep it away. Don't tell them. Why? Because we don't want to keep things positive. And all the meanwhile, you know what we're really doing? Is we're ignoring reality. We don't want to know. We don't want to hear about it. I know why you don't go to the doctor. You don't want to hear the bad stuff, right? You know, all right, you got to do, you got to start, stop eating that, start eating this, stop living this way, start living that way. Ah, you know, there's this thing that's, you know, it's easy, you know, the best way is just, you know, ignore it, right? You see the light on your car, and you know it has something to do with your engine, and you're just going to pretend like it's not there, right? How far can I, how long can I go on this deal here, right? It's really bad, too, if it's the gas one. You're not going to get real far. We ignore things. But you can't ignore this one. You must consider the day of the Lord. You must consider this on, this, on your calendar. You know why? It could be this year. It could be. Ever since Adam sinned, you know, there is one message that is critical, and it is this. You and I are on a fast track toward judgment unless something changes. So what do we need? We need the blessing that the Lord promised Abraham. Genesis 12. We need what Jesus said in John 3. How can you turn judgment into blessing? Three crucial ways that you need to wrestle with if you're unsure if you're saved. Not sure if you're saved, you need to really consider these. Or if you're a believer and you need just to remind yourself of, of, of this and to praise God for it. You know, some of you have, have forgotten just what you have in salvation. And you need this. So let's learn them. First of all, number one, accept that you deserve the coming judgment. Accept that you deserve the coming judgment. Look at what it says here in Zephaniah 3, verse 8. Therefore, wait for me, declares the Lord, for the day when I rise up to the prey... Indeed, my decision is to gather nations, to assemble kingdoms, to pour out on them my indignation, all my burning anger, for all the earth will be devoured by the fire of my zeal. Now, Zephaniah is a prophecy that's all about judgment. A lot of these minor prophets had these prophecies. And it was a twofold deal. Almost all of them, it was a twofold deal. One was, it's, they always prophesied this way. They prophesied in near terms and in far terms. And you could, I'll give you an easy example of that. We just got done with Christmas. Uh, Isaiah 7:14. There's going to be a virgin and she's going to give birth to a child and name him Emmanuel. You say, ah, well, what's that referring to? That's real simple. It's referring to Jesus, right? Well, sure, we know that because of Matthew 1. But do you understand? That was the sign for the king during that time. So it wasn't just for 700 years later. It was also for then, right there and then. So there's prophecy that is for now, and there's prophecy for the future, and they 
sometimes can be one statement that goes two different directions that way. So how do I know? Well, you have to consider what the, the Scripture says. And you, let, you need to let the Bible interpret the Bible, right? Well, this is one of those deals that, 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 that all throughout Zephaniah that, that, that does that. But he's speaking of judgment. And the judgment, the immediate judgment that he's speaking of all throughout Zephaniah has to do with, with Babylon that is to come and is, to, is going to bring destruction to Jerusalem. The future that he's speaking of here, when he, when he speaks of a future destruction, is a destruction that will be much greater than just Jerusalem. And Scripture all over the place speaks of this judgment. And if you want just one place to, to look at, just read Second Peter 3, and you'll get a, an idea of what this fiery destruction is going to be like coming up in the future. So, Zephaniah, really interesting. His name means the Lord hides. The Lord hides. Isn't that, isn't that interesting? I always love how the, these guys aren't just, I mean, the Lord always, he, he always picks the ones that he wants. I mean, he set them aside from birth. This is kind of the way it is. Why did, the, why did his parents name him Zephaniah? We didn't. The parents didn't know that he was going to be a prophet someday. But here he is. The Lord hides, and he's giving us this prophecy. And, you know, hides us from what? You know, you might ask. From the coming judgment. Isn't that what we need? A refuge. That's what the name Zephaniah helps us to think about. Zephaniah was an interesting prophet. You can read about him. I mean, you're not going to get a ton of information. But the stuff that we do know is really important and helpful. He was a fourth generation down from Hezekiah. Fascinating stuff. Hezekiah was a godly king. Uh, Hezekiah, that means that Zephaniah had royal blood. Uh, if, you do, if you work it all out. He goes, Hezekiah, and then remember Hezekiah had a couple of sons. They were not good ones, okay? Evil sons, Manasseh and Ammon. And you, and you look at all this, and it's like, wow, you know, this, was, this is not a, not a good thing here. Evil time during, during uh, the day of Zeph uh, that Zephaniah comes into previously. And by the way, he's preaching during Josiah's reign. You remember him, right? He was a godly king. And what's interesting is that after Hezekiah, as I mentioned, there were, there were two very wicked kings. You know, they served the combined 57 years, leading the nation in the deep immorality and idolatry. And, and uh, So this is the time period. And so here comes Josiah, and he, he brings reform, and he turns the people back to the Lord, back to his word, back to holiness and such like that. And so, in, in a, so you have these two things kind of going, kind of rubbing against one another. You have this pervasive evil that has, you know how evil is, it leaves its mark. And that's why you see with Josiah, he was throwing things away and tearing things down and breaking things up and smashing things because he's trying to erase this memory from the people. And so you have this pervasive evil and you have this reform that Josiah is bringing. You say... So, so why do they need a prophecy on judgment if they're doing well? I thought that this last week, thinking, why, is that, why does Zephaniah need to come to these guys? Well, now you understand why there's always a need for preaching, don't you? For, for the gospel, for helping people understand God's judgment and their sin. You understand Romans is all about what the gospel is, but Romans was written to what? A church. So wait a minute. Surely they understand the gospel. They're a church. After Paul lays out his theme in Romans, it's interesting. What does he start with when speaking about the gospel? Verse 18. The wrath of God is revealed. See? Judgment. Tell the people about the coming judgment that they deserve that's coming to them. That's what he says in Romans is the first part of the gospel. And again, that message was to a church. You know, the other reason here that Zephaniah is doing this is because even though it's good times right now, he wants to remind them, don't forget, you lived evil back then, and God is going to keep his promise to bring destruction to you. So even though things look good right now, understand there is a future that has to be accomplished because God promised it. And it's not as though there aren't uh, 
willing uh, participants in the evil, right? There were quite a few people there in Israel that were willing to join in with the evil, and they would in the future. And so even though there's Josiah and there's reform, God is also very clear here. That because of Israel's many sins and rebellion, God is going to bring a nation to destroy her, Babylon. You know, listen, beloved, there's always people in the churches that aren't Christians, right? They need the gospel. All right, well, let's pick up the context in chapter 3. Look at verse 1 here. God says, Woe to her who is rebellious and defiled. Who's that? Well, he's speaking about Judah here, Jerusalem. You say, are you sure? Yeah, look at verse 3. Her princes are not leading the people well. Then notice another group of people. Her judges, they weren't leading the people very well, were they? Her prophets were not leading the people very well. And her priests. So you have these four Israelite titles here. So he's talking about Jerusalem. He's talking about Israel. And what did she do? Verse 2. What does it say? He did no voice. She didn't listen to the preachers God sent her. It says she accepted no instruction. She didn't obey the word. And it says she didn't trust in the Lord. She had no faith. And then it says she didn't draw near to her God. No intimacy. No fellowship. This is the description of the people. So you have a no fellowship people, a no faith people, a people who don't want to obey the word, don't want to receive the instruction, don't preach to me, don't talk to me, don't confront me about my sin. I don't want to hear it. All you have to say is bad news and bad things, and I'm tired of hearing that. It's just, remember, that's just what they said to Jeremiah. It's just what they said to Ezekiel. We don't want to hear it. You're a bad news prophet. You're just all, you're an Eeyore prophet, right? We don't like you. We don't like the things that you say. It's all gloomy. Why can't we just sing happy songs and be happy people and just smile and play and just have a good time? She's a large group of unbelievers is what Israel's filled with at this time. Again, it would be like a church filled with unbelievers. Can you imagine that? It, it, it would be a, a church of people that call themselves Christians, but we're not. And let's just say that 95% of the church were filled with unbelievers. Can you imagine that? The Lord said in Revelation 2, he promised that he would take the lamp Stand away from a church like that. And what that means to you and me is this. He will remove his spirit. He will remove his blessing. He will remove his hand. And that church will just, he'll just let it go, just like Romans 1 speaks of. Let it go. So God's warning Israel. In fact, verses 6 through 7 here of Zephaniah 3 say, God will destroy the nations around her. And that's meant to be a warning to Judah. He says, look, I'm going to destroy the nations. Get a clue here. If I'm, going to do, if I'm going to destroy the nations, and you see me doing it, don't you think maybe you ought to repent? You think that maybe I could destroy you too? Sure. Now watch this. You can't get to the blessing until you see your need for it, right? You have to see the judgment first. The gospel starts with the bad news. And sometimes bad news sounds positive. You say, what, what does that mean? Watch this here. Bad news can sound something like this. God is holy. Well, that sounds positive, doesn't it? That sounds good. But if I ask this question, is that good or bad for you that God is holy? What's your answer to that? Well, oh, for me? <laughs> or for him? <laughs> it, ooh, the God is holy. Oh, man. Well, he's worthy of worship because of that. That's good. But does God expect me to be like him? Ooh, well, then that's bad. <laughs> See? That's a positive thing. God is holy, but there's a bad side to that. Ooh, I'm not sure I want him being holy. You want to be like you? No savior, right? 
you know, you say to your kids, uh, Daddy's on his way home. Is that good or bad? Right? That could be good. Waiting for Dad. Sweet. Gets home. Big hugs, smiles, kisses, all that stuff. It would be bad if you didn't, if you disobeyed, right? If Mom said, uh, yeah, when Dad gets home, we're going to deal with this issue here, whatever. Ooh, then it's bad. Then you don't want to hear that Dad's going to. You're looking at the clock going, why can't it stand still, you know? See, it's all in the condition of the kids, isn't it? Now, let's say that God is sovereign. What's that mean? He does whatever he wants to do, right? He rules. And his rule is governed by his holiness and his goodness. Is that good or bad for you? You know, if you're, if you're rebellious at heart, what is it? It's bad, isn't it? What's Israel's condition here? Look at verse 1. What's it say? Rebellious. Now watch this here. You're going to see all kinds of stuff here. Look at verse 8. Therefore, wait for me, God says. D don't move. I love this. Don't run away. You know, don't, don't say to yourself, man, I'm not sure about this church. Too much conviction here. You know, uh, too, too much feeling bad about stuff. Don't say that. Wait. Keep coming. Stay here. Why? Verse 8. For the day when I rise up to the prey, again, that's the day of chapter 1, Look at what the Lord is going to, going to do. My decision is to gather nations, to assemble kingdoms. Who's that? All my believers. Notice the word decision. God has appointed a day to judge all the unbelievers. Hebrews 9.27, it is appointed for men to die once, and after this comes what? Judgment, it says. Judgment. There's something that happens to a person after a person dies as an unbeliever, right? God's appointed a day to judge them on. In John 5, Jesus says, says it this way, an hour is coming, right, where that's going to happen. In fact, it says there, he's going to resurrect the unbeliever so that he can judge him. Listen. Not just judge his spirit, He's going to attach him back to his body so he can judge that unbeliever in both body and spirit so that he might feel the full effect of his fury and wrath and burning anger against sin. Romans 9, God chose who will be shown mercy and who's going to be hardened. Who's to be hardened? God did that. Notice, too, the, the, the words nations and kingdoms in verse 8. All the earth will be devoured. God will be impartial in his judgment. It doesn't matter where you come from. Notice also it's, it's God who's doing the gathering. And so you read Psalm 2 where it says the nations raged against the Lord. And it, you see that they, it says there in Psalm 2 that they came against his son. How did that work? How did that happen? It's, it's, it's that mind-boggling mystery that we have such a hard time with. God gathered, and yet they gathered themselves too, didn't they? In other words, God's hand was, had charted the course of history, but people were very willing to be against God. Amazing. God does not do this gathering apart from the people's willingness. God won't do what they don't want to do. What's that? Rise up against God. What's making them do this? Sin, right? This is really, this is really what tells us sin really exists. How can people do that? Because sin really exists. It's real. Romans 6 calls sin a sovereign, a tyrant, a master. Notice again what this wrath against all unbelievers will look like. 
he says to, in verse 9 and verse 8, to pour out on them my indignation, great hatred, seething hatred, and this, all my burning anger, it says. How much do you think just a little of God's anger would do? Right? Let's just say God was, you know, ticked off just a little bit. Yeah, right? I mean, then if he, when he says the fool deal, to spend it all out. By the way, if you want a picture of that, this is what is meant when it says that Jesus drank the cup of God's wrath on the cross for you. Poured it out onto the sun. Can you imagine what all his burning anger must look like? I'll tell you. He tells you, actually, at the end of verse 8, the earth will be devoured by the fire of my zeal. I mean, he is using all kinds of ways to describe this so that we get it. The coming judgment that all unbelievers deserve is fire from the Lord. God's going to destroy all unbelievers with fire. Now, when I say destroy, you, 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 don't, you shouldn't think annihilate as though going out of existence. This is an eternal destruction, which means you're in the constant state of torment. You say, is that the only reason to have the remnant of believers in Israel wait for the Lord? No. Number two. Point number two. That's the first point. Point number two. Understand only way a person is saved from that coming judgment. And we can see that here in verse 9. And so we have this, 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 this first point that is so critical that you need to accept that you deserve that coming judgment. All of you deserve it because you're sinners. All of you deserve it because you're sinful. You're no different than them. But understand the only way a person is saved from that coming judgment. It says here then in verse 9 of Zephaniah 3, For then I will give to the peoples. Verse 9, the prophecy continues. For then, I, then I'm going to give to the peoples there. He goes from destroying to giving. Notice Zephaniah doesn't say, For when you believe and trust in the Lord, then you can escape that judgment. It doesn't say that, does it? You know what he's saying here? He's saying to these people, look, there's coming a time when you're going to see all this destruction and I'm going to judge the world, but also in the same breath, there's going to be a people that will be saved. How's that going to happen? I'm going to do something. I'm going to intervene. I'm going to step into it. I'm going to stop some that are going in this inevitable direction opposite away from me, I'm going to stop them in, dead in their tracks and send them the other way towards me. In other words, he says, look, you've been rebellious. You've had a bad rebellious track all you, for, for generations and generations of peoples here. But I'm powerful and I'm sovereign and I'm able to step in and just turn it around for those whom I want to save. That's what he's saying. All salvation, beloved, is born out of God's sovereign will to save. It's all about divine enabling. It's all about divine initiating power. Salvation is what you could call a monergistic work. And that's a fancy... 25 cent word that just means it's one-sided, right? God does the work. And he needs none of our cooperation. He doesn't need us to just say, all right, you do most of it, I'll do a little bit here. I'll do my part, you do your part. Salvation is not that at all, is it? all about God doing it. So many places to see this, by the way. Matthew eleven twenty seven. no one knows the Son except the Father, nor does anyone know the Father except the Son. Listen, and anyone to whom the Son wills to reveal him. Boy, I tell you what, 
I love that verse because it basically tells me there in Matthew 11, 27, that if God wanted to just stop with, nobody knows the, 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 the Son except the Father, nobody knows the Father except the Son, he could, just, he could have just stopped right there. and says, look, we thought about it long and hard. We thought about maybe saving people. We decided against it. We vetoed it. It's not going to happen. We're satisfied and completely happy with just having the fellowship that we have as Father and Son. End of story. God would have been completely just and right to do that. And yet, it says in Matthew eleven twenty seven, and to anyone whom the Son wills to reveal him. I love that. Ooh. That you would will my salvation, Lord. Wouldn't that be good for him to will that for you too? Yeah. John 6, 37, all that the Father gives me will come to me. That's a, that's a, uh, that's a definite promise, right? That's a, you, you can't break that one. Will come to me, says verse 39, all that he has given to me, I lose nothing. God has given certain ones to the Son, the Father has. In verse 44, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. So there's a, there's a way to get them there. And there's a work that happens. And it's work that's happening by the Father. His hand, His work. That's what's all packed in there in that statement there of Zephaniah 3.9. For then I will give to the peoples. I will do it. This is a work that I will do. James 1.18, in the exercise of His will, He brought us forth. Salvation is not about some decision you've made. We've got to get that down. Otherwise, parents, you're going to be tempted to try and get your kids to just, just make some decision. Say some prayer. It's about the exercise of his will bringing us forth. And that word, bring us forth, means literally to be birthed out. That's the new birth. It's about God opening the heart, unveiling the eyes, making the ears hear. Remember John 1 and verse 12 as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God. Wonderful. They've received him. You must receive him. How does that work? Verse 13, born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. It's not based on man's will. But God doing a work in the heart to draw us and lead us to him. We wouldn't come, would we? got to do that. So many verses. John 3, 8, Jesus explaining what you must be born again means. He says this, the wind blows where it wishes. And you hear the sound of it. You hear the sound of that wind, right? You don't know where it's coming from. You say, where? I wish I could just see the wind. No? Well, you can't. See? And you don't even know where it's all going to, where it's going to come from. You ever been in one of those deals where the wind was, go, was blowing over there and then it changed and it was blowing over there? It, what, what changed it? <laughs> the Lord, boop, that's all you have to do, right? Just wi will that it was, it's over there, now it's over there, see? You don't know where it comes from and where it is going, but, li but listen to what he says. So is everyone who is born in the Spirit. In other, wor in other words, you can't figure this thing out, can you? You can't figure out how it is that that guy's saved and not that guy. Because it's a work of the Lord that he begins, that he does in the heart. And he doesn't do it apart from the preaching of the gospel. And all of that's a part of his sovereign plan and how he works it in. You don't know whom the Spirit is going to cause to hear God's voice. Now look back at our very own prophecy from Zephaniah. There in Zephaniah 3, look at verse 15. The Lord has taken away his judgments against you. He has cleared away your enemies, verse 17. He will exult over, uh, over you with joy, verse 18. I will gather those who grieve, verse 19. I will save the lame and gather the outcasts, and I will turn their shame into praise. Have you noticed how many times it's saying here, I will, I will, I will? It's all about God's will. It's all about what he wants. It's all about God doing it. It's like Acts 16 and the Lord opening Lydia's heart to hear what Paul was preaching. Why did he have to say that? Why couldn't he have just said, and Lydia received the Lord? Because he wanted us to know. 
there was stuff happening that you couldn't see with your eyes right there inside the heart. And I can recall, maybe you can too, when I started reading scripture going, something's happening here. He's talking to me. He's speaking to my heart. How did you know, Lord? How did you know? He's real. So first way to turn judgment into blessing is you have to accept you're, you're worthy to be judged. You don't deserve anything but coming judgment. You deserve to be punished. You deserve wrath. You deserve hell. You deserve severe banishment and darkness. Second, confess that you can't do this work. That you can't change yourself. You know, that's what was wrong with the early 1900s message from the world. You know what their message, and it hasn't changed, by the way, hasn't, hasn't changed at all. Their message was all about self-change, all about self-actualization. Make yourself better was their message. Y you can't. God must open the heart. So how do you know if he has? Final, finally, this third point here. Measure yourself against God's method of salvation. Measure yourself against God's method of salvation. How does he do it? Okay, we know he has to do the work. Well, tell us. How does he do it? Look at verse 9. Again. He says, I'm going to give to the peoples something. What's he going to do? I'm going to give to them purified lips that all of them may call on the name of the Lord to serve him shoulder to shoulder. What's, what's God's way of saving? Well, you can break it down into three acts. And these will be helpful for you. They all begin with R. I'll give them to you here. Now, if the last point was that God must act, this point is, here's how God acts. Okay? Now, God promises judgment. Israel was, was, was judged when, when Babylon came. He, he promises that. But there's a second judgment that this passage has been talking about. And it is the judgment that is for all the world. Have you noticed that? How can a person go from being in a condemned state to a blessed state? Three acts. First of all, the act of regeneration. The act of regeneration. Look at verse 9. By the way, regeneration means to be made new again. To be brought life. Literally, the word actually means to be born again. Regeneration. Look at verse 9 here. For I will give the people purified lips. God's work through the Spirit in the heart to cause us to turn to Him. That's the idea there. It's life being put in the man. It's the light being put into a darkened man to drive that darkness away. This is the aha with the man, with the with, with, with a woman. It's when you get to the place where you now can say, I see something that I've never seen before. John MacArthur is really helpful in uh, uh, helping us understand what this phrase, purified lips, means. It refers to the life. He says this, When combined with pure, the reference to speech speaks of inward cleansing from sin. Just like with, remember Isaiah, Isaiah 6.5? And it's, it's manifested in the speech, including the removal of the names of false gods from their lips. End quote. And so the idea, so you see this lips, and you think, well, why purified lips? Why not purified heart, purified mind? You know, there's a lot of things he could have said. Why purified lips? I'll tell you the reason why. Because purified lips tells us Something has happened internally that is manifesting itself externally. He could have said purified eyes, but all the eyes do is blink. You know the lips have speech, and you know a bit about a person and what they're like by what they what? Say. See. And that's why James 3 says that for the unbeliever, his tongue is set on fire by, the, by hell, the very fire of hell, and its course is, you know, condemnation. And so that's got to change, doesn't it? And it just manifests really what's in the heart. 
This is what John 3 was talking about. You must be born again. You are spiritually dead. That happened when Adam sinned. You know, he could only produce sinners from, from then on, right? This is Titus 3.5, the washing of water, the water of regeneration, which just simply means when God makes a person new. I mentioned Isaiah chapter 6. Isaiah said there, I'm a man of unclean lips. What did he mean by that? What he meant was that he, he's a sinner. I'm a sinner. I can't get my lips to say anything that, that would be righteous or holy. Or, and even the, you know, James 3 says, with, with your mouth you, you bless, but with the same mouth you curse. In other words, I, I, can't, I can't keep my mouth from saying cursed things. The same mouth that supposedly is singing those worship songs is out there hurting my brother and, and sister and, and all others. This is the reason why all those people who just try to get you to say yes to Jesus or to make some decision for Christ fall short. God has to give the purified lips. And what that means is that God is not after decisions. He's after purity. He's after heart change. Our mouths tell on our hearts. They reveal what's in there. And that's why he focuses on the lips. Honest lips come from an honest heart. Right? Now I'm going to show you something here. It's very, very important. And so when we talk about regeneration, we're talking about things, we're talking about something actually you can't see that's happened by God that he's done. And this is really important because this is you have to have this before you get the next thing. Now, when a person is saved, you don't see these things in the sequence. It's not like they happen in a long sequence. They happen quite quickly. There's no real time involved here. But you have to understand this. And in fact, actually, if you get the second point, if you make the second point first and the first point second, you're going to wind up with a, a kind of a Catholic doctrine of doing something to earn something. So it's really important that you understand this. Now, second, the second act in saving is repentance. Look at what verse 9 says. God's going to give the people purified lips that all of them may call on the name of the Lord. The word that is a purpose word. Why did God have to first purify the lips? Listen, because his work comes of making new life before our response, right? If he doesn't make us new, how are we going to respond? Well, like the old guy, 2 Corinthians 5.17. That's how we're going to respond. We're going to respond like the old guy. That's not going to help. There has to be a denial of self. There has to be a saying no to you, a denial of you. And you have no interest in denying you until the Lord changes you. You understand that? His work comes before our response. Regeneration always comes before faith. That's the point. Always. So God gives the new life, and as a result, we can respond by turning away from our sin and turning toward God to do what? To obey Him. And that's the idea here. Look at that phrase, call on the name of the Lord. That's not just prayer, beloved. It's a, it's a crying out for His mercy, sure. It, that call there is a, is a call of repentance. You know, we've studied this before. Do you know what that call looks like? Calling on, on the name of the Lord? You know what repentance looks like? Have you ever wondered, what does repentance look like? I mean, Romans 10, 9, that if we confess with our mouths Jesus as Lord and believe in our hearts, right? God raised him from the dead. What will he do? He'll save us. There's a calling out for with the lips we, we, we confess as we call out on the Lord to save us. What does that look like, though, that repentance? Let me give you a few pictures here from the Gospel of Luke. A few pictures here of what it looks like. Luke 5.27, After that, that, Jesus went out and noticed a tax collector named Levi sitting in the tax booth, and he said to him, Follow me. And he left everything behind and got up and began to follow him. That's what repentance looks like. Luke 6, verse 46 
Why, Jesus says this, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? Everyone who comes to me and hears my words and acts on them, I will show you whom he is like. He's like a man building a house, dug deep, laid a foundation on the rock. And when a flood occurred, the torrent burst against that house and couldn't shake it because it had been well built. But the one who has heard, you heard the gospel, and he has not acted accordingly, is like a man who built a house on the ground without any foundation. By the way, what is it like to, to act accordingly? It's not just to say, Lord, Lord, but it's to treat him as he's your Lord, Lord, right? By doing what he says, that's repentance. Luke 7, verse 40. Jesus comes and he says, Simon, I got something to say to you. And he's this guy, Simon, who's a sitting with, he's, he's a Pharisee. And um, he's having a hard time with the things that Jesus is teaching. And he'll say a teacher. And he's all right, listen to this one. A moneylender had two debtors, one owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they were unable to repay, he graciously forgave them both. So which of them will love him more? Simon said, well, I suppose one whom he forgave more. And he said to him, you judge correctly. And so he turned to the woman. There's this woman, and you remember that the woman had uh, anointed his feet and poured this alabaster full of perfume all over. And the thing that Simon was struggling with, here's this woman who is a sinner, a woman who has committed adultery. How could Jesus be around that kind of a woman? He says, Simon, do you see what this, do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but since the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. Now let me ask you something. Why is this woman doing this? Because somebody sat her down and said, all right, here's how you do it. You gotta do this, that, and you gotta, you know, show Jesus you really love him, and you gotta go in there, and, and it's gotta be a, you know, a, Use your hair, right? And, you know, this will be great. He'll really like this. Is that how it worked? There was a movement in her heart to do this. Why? Out of purely I love, Jesus tells us. Well, where'd that come from? Somewhere along the line, she was what? Regenerated. How'd that happen? God did it. She heard preaching. She said, he's the Savior. I believe him. That's simple. Verse 47, for this reason I say to you, her sins which are many have been forgiven her, for she loved much, but he who is forgiven little loves little. Look, you don't think you have sins, he says to this guy. But she who is convinced that she deserved coming judgment. See how that works? Came to the place where she threw herself on the Father's mercy, and God forgave her. That's why he says this. Verse 48, Jesus said there, your sins have been forgiven. It's already done. It's already happened. It's already happened. And the people, of course, at the table said, oh, wow, who is this man who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Now, by that, does he mean um, it's all you? It's not God. No, what he means is this. Look, I know. I know who you are. God began working on your heart. He drew you to this place. You felt the misery of your sins. And you just simply believed. And guess what? That's the response of true repentance. So many passages that you can look at. In Luke, Zacchaeus in Luke 19. Remember? He came, and Zacchaeus was looking for him. Ah, I found him. He had felt conviction, and what did he do? He gave it all. He said, look, I've wronged people. I want to fix that. I want to change that. I'm not that guy anymore. And then Jesus said to him, salvation has come to this house. That's repentance. That's what it looks like. And then there's a third and final act in saving, and it's restoration. Back to... Zephaniah. Look at, what, look at what I mean. By the way, what I mean by that, I mean a restoration to God and others in relationship. 
you get along with God, you get along with others, and believe me, that's a work of God, isn't it? To do that. That's what salvation is. You realize that the, the, the activity of all unbelievers until the day that they die is simply tolerance with one another? That's all it is. Everybody, every unbeliever lives in a constant state of tolerance with others because they can't, they don't want to be around them. They're around them because they have to or they get something out of, the, out of others. But for the believer, it's not that way, is it? Will you notice what it says in verse 9? It says to serve him shoulder to shoulder. Oh, I love that. Shoulder to shoulder. What's that? See, get the picture? You're next to other people, aren't you? See? Shoulder to shoulder means I'm at peace with this guy and that guy on my right, on my left. By the way, Cain couldn't do this with Abel, could he? He couldn't stand his brother. That's massive evidence of regeneration. Unity, which spawns from love, and, and their service and harmony, which spawns from love. And where did that love, how did that love get in there? The Lord put it in there, didn't he? Romans 5.5, 5, Holy Spirit pours the love of God in the hearts of those whom he saves. God saves us to be with one another, to be shoulder to shoulder with one another, to serve Him that way. And all, by the way, all those commands of the New Testament to love one another can't happen if you're not a part of His church. You have to be with people to love people, don't you? And the blessed thing of all that is, you know, here we all are, we all have one thing in common. We're half-baked, aren't we? We have all that in common. We're not done yet. So you know what? You sin against me and I sin against you. Oh, I don't know if I want to be with you. Well, sure, you don't feel like it, but you come back to God's grace. You come back to forgiveness. Oh, and then you get around that person. They forgive me for saying this against you or doing this against you. And all of a sudden, guess what we have? Shoulder to shoulder serving him again. And that's what he wanted. He wanted Israel to know. He wanted these believers to know, look, it's not this way right now. God's going to save you. When he does, you can recognize it. You'll know what it looks like. Hey, listen. By the way, in this context, who are they shoulder to shoulder with? Gentiles. Not just Jews. Gentiles. Whew. That's good stuff. You know what he's saying? Man, there's going to be peace. You can be with anyone who is a believer this way. God regenerates and causes repentance. He places us into a community of people whom we can serve with him and whom we can love. In fact, did you know that the word for fellowship, koinonia, is also translated as community? This is simply Acts 2. Acts 2, where it says that the, where he says, uh, he calls them to Repentance. Repent and believe, he says. And it says that the people did. And many thousands came into the Lord. And then it says they just wanted to be with each other, didn't they? Beautiful picture. Well, there's so much more that we could say here out of Zephaniah. Let's bring this to a, a, a close here. I'm hope, hoping you, you know a little more about Zephaniah and, and can really appreciate, you know, this prophecy. Such a vital, critical prophecy let me conclude here with, with four concluding uh, thoughts here. What does a message from Zephaniah like this imply? Four things. First of all, that God must be the Savior. By saying all of that, clearly he has shown, he has completely smashed any type of self-effort, self-help, self-doing of anything. And that's why verse 15 and 17 say, the Lord is in your midst. He came down, it says, to be a victorious warrior. It says here, to sing over you with joy. Why? So that he might earn your salvation over the, the, the judgment that you deserve. The Lord did come in our midst, beloved. God the Father sent Jesus Christ to be our warrior. And you know it says, the Lord will be in your midst. The Lord your God is in your midst there, verse 17. It's not talking about the Father. Can't be. God is spirit, right? It's talking about somebody that they could see, yep, 
He's in our midst. It's a, it's a preview of the Lord Jesus coming. Secondly, it implies that prayer must be the response. A, a, you could say a kind of prayer, a life prayer even. If God must first move in on your heart, then you have to pray. That's why verse 9, that all may call on the name of the Lord. There's a calling out to him. There's a turning to him. In chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, he says, uh, it says there that we're to gather ourselves before the decree takes effect. What decree? That God will judge the whole world. Gather yourself today, he says. Do it, verse 2 says, before the day of the Lord's anger comes upon you. In verse 3 it says, seek the Lord, seek righteousness, seek humility. So there's a seeking. Seek after him. Go after him with all your heart. He's saying, well, there's nothing you can do. Right. He's done it all, so go after him with all you've got. See? It's the running of the prodigal son who sees the father's there. He's coming after me. He wants me. I'm running to him. Look, if the father wants me, I'm running after him. Right? Why wait till he gets here? I'm running after him. Third thought here. Third implication from this passage that the church is a massive priority for our Lord, the King of Israel. Beloved, there is no room for independence. God's given us a shoulder-to-shoulder -shoulder kind of life to live in His service. And so I count you as a blessed family, my blessed family, and you should do the same. Fourth, and this is the one we'll leave off here, that God fourth implication that God does all of this to recover joy verse 14 he says shout for joy as a result of, of, of that text rejoice and exult with all your heart verse 17 says and then he even says that God is going to do that very thing God will sing over you with joy and then in verse 19 he will turn their shame into praise and renown and will do the same for all those who come to him and he will restore fortune and you know the fortune he's talking about here it's the spiritual riches spiritual riches in Christ. Yes, there's a, there's a physical aspect as it, as it relates to Israel, but I tell you what, it reminds us of the spiritual riches that Ephesians 1.3 speaks of. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. What a happy day. Truly, this year can be a happy year. Happy New Year, right? Father, we thank you, Lord, for this message here with Zephaniah and this faithful, faithful prophet, Lord, who proclaimed this message. That the people there in Israel who were being judged, and so many of them, and he even said, perhaps the Lord might hide you. As it says there in, in, in 2 3, perhaps you will be hidden in the day of the Lord's anger. Oh, Lord, help us to. To believe that and see that. and Father, we thank you for Christ. In Christ, we can be hidden from your anger. And we thank you for that, Lord. Praise you. And in Christ, we can experience all the love, Lord. And all the grace and the kindness. And be spared from all that judgment. What a blessing to have and know Christ. I pray, Lord, you would help us to enjoy this. And if there are some that don't know you this way, I pray you would turn their judgment the blessing this very day. Pray this in the name of our dear Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ.